Lord, wholeheartedly. Let's begin our time together by joining our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer. Father, we thank you that we have such a wondrous reason to bring you worship. We pray that by your Spirit you would focus our hearts and our minds upon you and cause all that is done here to bring you the honor you deserve. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. In John chapter 20, we're told about that first day of the week after Jesus had been crucified, three days having passed since that time. And we read that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. He said he was ascending to his Father And our Father, because of what Jesus has done, we have been reconciled. And we have now been given the privilege and the glorious gift of announcing the resurrection of Christ to all the world. So congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let us sing praise to Him, children. I think you probably know this song as well. Day of Resurrection, number 364 in our Blue Psalter hymnal, number 364. We'll sing all three stanzas of the Day of Resurrection.
Mary proclaimed to the disciples the truth that she had seen and experienced, that Jesus was victorious over over, over death, had come back to triumph on behalf of his people. Understandably, they had a hard time with that. But John tells us that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so Jesus announced his victory, that he had accomplished absolutely everything necessary to cleanse us from our sin, to restore us to God the Father, and to give us life eternal. And John tells us at the end of that that chapter, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Every one of us ought to know, in their hearts do know, that we have failed God, we have fallen short, we have sinned, we have rebelled against Him, we deserve only punishment. But He assures us that if we trust, if only we trust in Jesus, we have life. Life abundant, life that no one can take from us. But we must trust in Him. Let us confess our faith in Christ and our confidence in His triumph. As we sing the song that the children just led us in singing a few moments ago, number 356, Christ the Lord is risen today, we'll sing all four stanzas.
We know that God's law reveals our sin and our rebellion. We're going to talk about that in a little bit from our scripture text, our sermon text. But the law also comes to us as those who have been freed from our slavery to sin. As those who have been delivered from our condemnation to death. And therefore the law calls us to live a life of gratitude. You see, we, we haven't done anything to accomplish, to earn, to deserve reconciliation with God and life eternal. And so God calls us to live a life of response, a life of gratitude. And the law lays that out for us. God says to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In short, this law calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves thereby fulfilling the purpose for which we were made, which is that we might glorify God and reflect His character. And the only way we can is by His power at work within us. This too, Jesus accomplishes for us, sending the Holy Spirit to His people, as we saw in our reading of Assurance of Pardon. But we need to pray for His help. We need to pray for Him to exercise dominion over our lives. So we're going to do that. In addition, a few um, prayer concerns um, and updates. Um, This evening, we look forward to seeing the baptism of Esther Sato, who was born on Monday. Uh, We praise the Lord that that everything went well and that that, uh, Sabrina's mom was able to be present uh, before having to uh, return to Uruguay. 
and um, we praise the Lord that that her dad is able to be here to take part in that baptism. So praise the Lord for that. Um, Linda and Bruce were able to get home from the Mayo Clinic on uh, on Monday. So praise the Lord for that, and and continue to pray for Linda's recovery from her surgery. Dan Van Enns is preparing to start a new course of uh, of treatment that involves chemotherapy and immunotherapy on Tuesday. Um, so please keep him in prayer, and uh, and keep Tori and Gabe in your prayers as well as they. Uh, their unborn child was taken to be with the Lord last Monday. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are merciful beyond all measure. When we think about the resurrection of your son from the dead and the victory that that act sealed for us, How not only did he die for the sake of our sins and receive the fullness of the condemnation that we had earned, but he also rose up triumphant so that death would have no power over us. When we think about the magnitude of that victory, Lord, we are undone. We stand in awe that you would love us so abundantly, that you would work so perfectly for us. And we pray that you would fill our hearts constantly with wonder. With wonder at your love, with wonder at our privilege to know you and serve you. Father, we confess that far too often we take these glorious truths lightly. We shrug and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And we pass up opportunities to tell others what you have done and how blessed we are because of it. Lord, grant that we might take it lightly no longer, but fill us with a passion and with a wonder and with courage that out of love for our neighbor and gratitude for you, we might tell everyone at every opportunity what you have done and how blessed we are because of it. And grant that we might devote our very lives as an offering of gratefulness to you. That we might put off the sin that once held us captive. That we might take up the work that you have given us to do in a manner that testifies that you have done it. That you have empowered us and that you deserve all the glory, the honor and the praise. Father, we thank you for the multitude of, of lesser gifts you've given. Not only have you uh, given us life eternal and reconciliation with you so that we could know ourselves, your sons and daughters, but you care for our health and our strength. You provide us, you provide us with gifts by which we can work, families that fill our lives with joy, a church family that nurtures and blesses us, the freedoms of this land by which we can worship and confess boldly. And so many other gifts that we can't even begin to list them. We need your help. We need your blessings every day, Lord. Grant that each day as we awake, we might consider anew those rich blessings. 
and how perfectly you sustain us and might resolve once more to live for you, to put you first, and to put to death that old man that still strives for control over us. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless your people as you have so richly done. We pray that you would comfort those who grieve. We think of, of uh, Gabe and Tori. We ask that you would comfort and strengthen them and remind them constantly of your care. We think of others in our midst who are grieving this day over the loss of loved ones, over uh, the consequence of their sin. Lord, this is, in many ways, this world is a veil of tears. And we pray that you would comfort us with your very presence and with promises that are richer than man's mind could imagine. And we thank you, Lord, for the joy of answered prayer, for the birth of little Esther coming forth at just the right time in just the right way. We pray that you would bless her and that you would bless her parents as they raise her up to know and serve you. We thank you for allowing Linda to finally have her surgery and for her and Bruce to be able to get home after that long trip. We pray that you would continue to provide healing and strength and that you would make evident your perfect power in their lives. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to watch over your people in their times of need, in their uh, need for healing and strength. We pray especially for Dan as he prepares to undergo a new cancer treatment. We ask that you would strengthen and bless him in that and that you would make that treatment effective even as you cause Dan and others going through that trial with him uh, to be helpful to those who come after in their testing of these new treatments. Father, we bring before you others in our midst who are in particular need, those who are struggling with cancer, those who are longing for healing of the body, those who deal with constant pain and struggles. Lord, you know each one and you know their needs. We praise you for the uh, children that we are expecting to be born in coming months as Ladies in our midst are nurturing those new lives within. We pray that you would bless them and bring forth those children in your good time. We pray for those who are preparing for marriage, that they might experience your provision and your blessing in that preparation. We pray for our family members who are in need. We ask that you would comfort and strengthen them even as you raise us up to remind them of where true hope is found. Hope is something that our world and that this nation are in desperate need of. Lord, we see the headlines. Another shooting. Another tragedy. Another tornado or a fierce storm leaving people homeless. We see the statistics of how many people are incarcerated, of how many people are on drugs, 
of how pervasive mental illness is becoming, of how ugly the sins of our countrymen have grown. We see the corruption in government such that people don't know whom they can trust. Lord, we know the hope that they need. In Christ, you have provided reconciliation for sinners with the Holy God. But more than that, you have promised that all of this ugliness, all of this sin, all of this dysfunction, one day soon will be wiped away. The world will be renewed to the perfection with which you originally created it. And heaven and earth will be united as one. And your people cleansed from every sin and every effect of sin will be brought into the fullness of your presence where we will be able to serve you with the utmost perfection. Lord, we long for that time. And yet you have given us that news, those promises, that fulfillment, even now that we might tell the world. And that those who lack hope, that those who live in the midst of darkness might know that there is something better. Lord, we pray that you would empower your church to proclaim that truth before a watching world. That you would enable us to proclaim it with conviction and passion and gratitude. And that going before us through your Holy Spirit, you would prepare the hearts of those who hear. That they might turn, that they might receive, that they might rejoice along with us. Lord, there is no hope apart from Christ. There is no truth, there is no goodness, there is no true life apart from Him and all that He has accomplished. We pray that You would send Your Spirit with great power, Your Word with great effectiveness, that Your kingdom might be gathered together, Your elect might be drawn near. And Lord, we pray that You would preserve and empower Your church In so many places the church meets under the threat of violence as Satan and those who serve him gnash their teeth in anger at the sound of your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would restrain him and that you would cause your church to worship without fear and without worry, knowing that he who is in us is infinitely greater than the one who is in the world. Grant that our worship might please you this day, that we might celebrate to learn of you, to speak of you, to sing your glorious praises. And Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's word from Romans 5 once more, let's stand and sing together. We're going to sing... From Psalm 21, Selection B. 21, Selection B, the first four stanzas.
Having sung that song of Christ's victory, we turn to a passage that describes the effects of that victory. We're going to look at Romans 5, the last two verses, 20 and 21, but that we might recall the context that we have so recently considered. We're going to start reading at verse 15. For the last few weeks, we've looked at how, uh, how Jesus would come as the answer to Adam's sin, as the new Adam, the last Adam. Whereas Adam plunged us into sin and death and alienation from God, Jesus came to free us from our sin, to restore us to God, to give us life eternal. And so beginning at verse 15, we read the free gift. I'm sorry, the, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by, that, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything, overturns everything gloriously. That is the very heart of the message that we've been seeing in Romans 5. And that is the focus of the message that we find in the final text of this absolutely glorious chapter. Full disclosure, I've preached Romans 5 previously. It's a goldmine especially for considering the significance and the effect of Jesus' sacrifice culminating on the cross. But I've never preached the last two verses. Quite honestly, it always seemed like a bit of an epilogue, an afterword, not really adding all that much to the discussion. But nothing in God's word is unimportant. You know that. I know that. But sometimes we act contrary to what we know. This time, through Romans 5, for various reasons, I decided to use that last text in the chapter. And wow! The lessons they hold. The triumph those verses declare. Yes, it's an epilogue. Yes, it's a bit of an afterword. 
But what Paul says in that afterward is powerful and we need to hear it. Because here in these final two verses, we are reminded of the glorious truth that Jesus Christ's victory overturned the outcome of man's sin. That's our theme this morning, and it's a glorious theme that we need to internalize, that we need to take with us, that Jesus Christ's victory overturned the outcome of mankind's sin. And the first part of that victory that Paul here proclaims is the victory that abundantly displaces the result of the law. And that's our first point. Now verse 20 reintroduces talk of the law, which we heard earlier in Romans 5. But to what does that refer? Oftentimes in the New Testament, when we hear talk about the law, we're being referred to the ceremonial law. The commands that God used to set apart the people of Israel. These were the commands having to do with how old Israel was to worship Him. And how they were to dress and live and eat. Things that would set them apart and and make it clear to the people around them that they were different. That they served a different God. That they had been set apart in a different way. Here, however, the law refers, as it did in verses 13 and 14, to the moral law. The written commands that express a morality that is universally binding. This is the law of the Ten Commandments, which was given through Moses on Mount Sinai. That law, revealed by God through Moses, was known by mankind from the start because it's written on our hearts, in our consciences, In other words, the law to which verse 20 refers is the written expression of the moral code that binds all men. The effect of that law, says Paul, is to increase the trespass. The law increases the trespass, increases the sins of men in at least two ways. The clearest way is that the law reveals our sin as sin. See, we are experts in convincing ourselves that it's not really sin, that which we want to do. We tell ourselves all sorts of lies about our sin. We make arguments that make it seem necessary for us to commit that sin, or make it seem like it's not really that bad, that it's utterly understandable, that it's it's really not all that displeasing to God after all. But the law, the law faces or causes us to face the truth. It silences all those creative arguments. It shines a bright light on all those little fibs. Romans 3 verse 19 says, The law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And that is an essential task, holding us accountable to God. Every person, every descendant of Adam knows that something is wrong with him. But that vague sense that something is wrong is insufficient. It doesn't silence our arguments of self-justification. It doesn't force us to recognize the reality and the depth and the ugliness of our sin. We need the law to make the reality of our sin absolutely undeniable. It's like shining a bright light on your favorite tie. As a minister, I have way too many ties. And some of them I like a lot more than others. I just like the design. I like the way they fit with my favorite shirt, whatever. You tend to wear those ties more and more and more. 
And, you know, bedrooms tend to not have great light. And so you pull the tie out and you think, yep, that's good. And you throw it on. But, but if you take that favorite tie and you put it under a bright light, it's not long before you start seeing there's a stain there. And there's the last time I wore it to a fellowship dinner. And there's a loose thread. Now, those stains, those flaws, the light didn't cause them. The light didn't make them appear. No, they were there all along. When you went out in public, people saw them, but you didn't recognize them until you shined that light on them. Well, that's the law. The sins that we commit are sinful. They're ugly. They're rebellion. They're hateful to God. They condemn us. But because of our own self-blindness, because of the lies that we tell ourselves, we can't see them, we won't see them until the law shines a light on them and demonstrates how despicable, how despicable they are in the sight of God. And it also does more than that. The law increases our trespass in another way. By describing sin, the law excites in us a desire to commit it. Paul describes that in great detail in Romans 7. There he says, I, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. How utterly corrupt, how utterly wicked is the fallen heart. I mean, think of it. God gives us a command to warn us against a sin that is hateful to Him and that will destroy us. We hear that command and we go, oh, that's what I want to do. Oh, that would be fine. I haven't tried that one. The law not only reveals the sin that is there, but it excites in us a desire to sin even more. We see it in our own children. You give them rules to keep them from doing that which would hurt them or that which would embarrass them or simply that which would offend God. But the more rules you give them, the more creatively they sin. Inspired, as it were, by those rules. It's terrible. It's sad. And yet... In both of those ways, the law hurts us in a helpful manner. God's law forces us to see the truth about ourselves. It's not a pleasant truth by any means. But unless we see that reality, we can't really understand and respond to the ugliness that is inherent to us. We absolutely must understand the truth about our condition. That we are guilty of rebelling against God. That we deserve His just wrath. And that we are powerless to save ourselves. We need to see the depth and the extent of our sin. How eager our hearts are to embrace rebellion against God and to justify us in our own sight. Because only if we see, only if we acknowledge the hopelessness of our sin how hateful it is to God, how ensnared we are by it, only thus can we seek salvation outside ourselves. What is the alternative to the law of God? Sinful man will say, well, the alternative to the law is liberty. It's doing whatever feels right. The law says you must not. Liberty says do what you will. The law says you will be condemned. Liberty says have fun with it. But that's a lie. Even if you don't see the stains, they're still there. Even if you don't recognize and acknowledge the rebellion, it still condemns you. The alternative to the law 
is not unrestrained liberty. The alternative to the law is grace. Grace is a concept that is both simple and gloriously complex. It's simple in its essence. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, cut off from God and deserving of eternal wrath. But God gives you life. God restores you to a relationship with Himself. God gives you everything you need freely. That's grace. Simple. So so simple a concept that our children can get it. And yet wrapped up in that simple concept. God choosing from among the mass of fallen mankind those whom he would save. God sending his beloved son that he might live the perfectly righteous life that we refuse to live. God causing his son to suffer because of the consequence, because of the guilt of our sin. God forsaking his own beloved son. Because that's what we deserve. Pouring out the fullness of his wrath upon him, even though that would have destroyed us. And then God raising him up after three days from the dead so that death would have no victory over us. God causing him to proclaim himself to us that we might know that there is rescue from our sin beyond ourselves. God sending his Holy Spirit to soften hearts that were hard as stone. impressing upon them the faith by which they could be joined to Christ, imputing upon those sin-infused hearts the satisfaction and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ Himself. Forgiveness and life freely given, implemented with a perfection that we can see in all the details. That is grace. But don't get lost in all the weeds. All of those details are important. But knowing, mastering the knowledge of all those details doesn't get us to heaven. The criminal on the cross, he didn't know all the theology, did he? Very doubtful he would have been able to define imputation or that he had any any idea of the intricacies of vicarious atonement. Knowing that stuff is helpful, please understand. Catechism is good, kids. But the criminal on the cross, he knew that he was a sinner who deserved the wrath that was being poured out upon him. He knew that Jesus wasn't a sinner and was dying for others. He knew that Jesus was dying willingly for those who would trust him. All of that is what he knew. And so he trusted in Jesus. He prayed to Jesus. And thus he was delivered that very day into eternal life. Despite the sin that abounded in his life, because he trusted in the man Jesus Christ by faith, therefore he received the grace of God unto eternal life. It is that Simple. And that is the testimony, that is the promise of all of Scripture. In the Old Testament we see it. Micah 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Notice who is acting there. It is God, and it is God, and it is God again. He does it all. 
That's why he sent Jesus. Or think of Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating ourselves. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's his promise. That is why Jesus came. That is what he accomplished. And verse 20 of our text tells us it's not even a one-on-one exchange. The law condemns sinful men, reveals to us our rebellion, incites us unto further sin. But grace absolutely abounds, superabounds. That's what the word in verse 20 there means, superabounds. Jesus didn't earn for us just barely enough to get us over the threshold and into heaven, no. Where the trespass increased, grace superabounded so that we could be entered fully into the eternal life that he came to secure for us. Do you grasp that that is the significance of what we celebrate on Easter? That that is what we celebrate every single Lord's Day when we gather here. Sin was ready to absolutely destroy you. The law didn't do that to you. You did it. The law just revealed it. Because of your sin, because of what you did, you were dead. But God through Christ, abundantly, exceptionally, perfectly overcame. When He died on that Roman cross, all of my guilt, all of my misery, all of my ugly rebellion, all of my isolating estrangement, all of the utter hopelessness that filled me, all of it was poured out on Him. And when He arose from that tomb, I arose with Him. I arose unto peace with God. I arose unto life eternal. I arose unto hope and joy endless. Sin increased, but grace superabounded unto life. Christ's victory absolutely displaced the result of the law with grace beyond that which we can even comprehend. But that's not all. Verse 21 comes along and makes it even more specific. And in doing so, the Apostle closes this chapter by showing us that Christ's victory powerfully dethrones the reign of death. Verse 21 starts by telling us that not death, but sin reigned in death. Sin reigned. It ruled like a king. Sin was calling all the shots. Sin was controlling mankind and society and the world itself. Sin was the one on the throne. That was the situation in the aftermath of Adam's one act. He committed sin. And his children took that up as a challenge. He did one thing that God forbade. Cain, his son, killed his other son. Cain's offspring took it even farther. 
until come to the time of the flood and there is evidence that the heart of man is filled with evil all the time in every way. And it led to death. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence of sin. Because sin reigned, death became pervasive from the very start. That was going to be the end of every life. No matter what relative good there might seem to be in that life, it's filled with sin. Sin is what guides, directs, reigns that, over that life. And therefore death reigns over that person. And that was true for every single person Jesus accepted. That was the status quo from Adam unto Christ. From Adam to the flood, the sin of mankind grew, being magnified from one generation to the next. But the flood didn't end it, didn't eradicate it, even though it was the best of the best who were saved. Immediately after the flood, waters receded. We find Noah hit in the bottle, passing out drunk in his tent, his son Ham mocking his father and spreading his dishonor. Their descendants building a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves rather than taking the name of God. To gather together in one place rather than spreading over the world like God commanded. That's been the story of mankind throughout our history. Sin has reigned. The story of ancient civilizations is rife with the the wickedness and the sin of man. Modern history makes us blush with the extent of the ugliness. In every generation, sin has called the shots and therefore death has triumphed, has reigned over the lives of men. Jesus came to overturn it. To do that, he needed to not be enslaved to sin himself. So he never gave in to even one temptation. He never embraced the sinful desires of the flesh. He never put himself first at the cost of someone else. Jesus lived a life of absolute perfect innocence. Death had no claim on him. And yet willingly, he allowed himself to be condemned. He suffered the full weight of death, endured every pain of the process, cried out when God rejected him because of our guilt. And then he entered the unremitting isolation and suffering of the grave for us. But then he arose. Death could not hold him. Jesus was greater than death, greater than judgment, greater than all that would have destroyed us everlastingly. He arose from the grave and death was defeated. And instead of death, all who are joined to Jesus are brought under the reign of grace unto life eternal. Judgment no longer overshadows our lives. Do you get that? Jesus endured the weight of our judgment And therefore there is no price left for us to pay. How glorious. Death no longer looms over us. Because death is judgment. And Jesus was judged for us. Death promises isolation. And Jesus was cut off for us so that we might be restored. Death fulfills, culminates the desire to reject God in rebellion. But Jesus has restored us fully. And therefore, for those in Christ, death has been transformed. It was the start of endless torment for those who hated God. 
That's what it remains for those outside of Christ. That's why they fear it, why they hate it, why they long to escape from it. But for us, for those in Christ, death has now become the start of the fullness of life. In fact, it's become a a time of transition. We depart from a life of struggle, a life of fighting against our sin, a life of pain and, and sickness and tears. We walk through that portal, not into judgment, that's gone but into perfection, into the glory of the presence of God, into the fullness of what we were made to be and to do and to experience and to know. Death has been dethroned for the people of God because Jesus, the righteous one, arose from the grave. Therefore, grace reigns unto life eternal. That was his promise to his disciples at the start. John 10 verse, 10, uh, John 10, verse 28 I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And what he promised, he perfectly fulfilled. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, through faith in Jesus, that, my friends, is our reality. Jesus changes absolutely everything. He changes our desires. He changes our longing. He changes our identity. He changes our very eternity. Jesus' victory overturned the outcome of man's sin. For all who turn to Him by faith, there is nothing remaining to condemn us. There is nothing left to judge. But we are reconciled to God. We are renewed in our nature. We are promised a future of absolute perfection in Christ. Only let us trust in Him. Let us believe His promises. And all that He promised, all that He obtained is ours even now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we rejoice that Your Son has obtained absolutely everything necessary that we might know ourselves not only as not condemned, but as Your beloved children destined for life eternal in the midst of perfection by your power. Lord, enable us daily to trust in him for that. Enable us continually to celebrate your grace and your goodness and cause us to live a life of thanksgiving in response. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to that reality, we can do no other than to give thanks to God. So let's stand and sing together from Trinity Psalter Hymnal 365, Thine Be the Glory. 365.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the multitude of blessings and gifts you have given to us. Receive now the worship we bring in response through our tithes and our offerings, giving you all the thanks and all the glory for that which you have done to provide for us day by day, even as you have provided for us throughout all eternity in Christ. In his name we pray it, amen. Our offering song this morning is number 26 from our Blue Psalter hymnal. Number 26, we'll sing the first stanza and then three through six.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.